This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Mama told me, son, go and play in the yard. Papa said, go and play. You gotta break your stomach. Go and scream real hard. Go play in the yard. Go play in the yard. You gotta burn your stomach. It's a special edition of Inside the Yard. Brett Hollander and Jeff Arnold. A bonus segment today, we're going to talk to a legend in our industry. Mr. Chris Berman will join us. And then we'll have one of the top pitching prospects in all the land, D.L. Hall. And then our insider segment, Melanie Newman, talking about the Orioles. But first, I want to get into why we're having Chris Berman on. And it's in honor of the 25th anniversary, which is on Sunday, September 6th, of Cal Ripken breaking Lou Gehrig's consecutive games record playing in 2,131 consecutive games. The Orioles, Major League Baseball, are all doing a lot of special tributes for the upcoming weekend. And Chris Berman had the call on television on ESPN. And we'll get into it with Chris. And it's really a cool interview. And I want to say a few things. First of all, Jeff, awesome job running down Chris Berman to make this happen. And I think we need to put some context to it. Chris Berman, who had the national television call in one of the seminal moments in baseball history, he – won an Emmy for that broadcast alongside Buck Martinez, more for what he didn't say than what he did say, which is very un like But I know we have a lot of new listeners to this podcast, a lot of younger listeners who may have not seen that game and the national broadcast of it. But I think it's kind of important in context to the conversation we have. Yeah, well, I'll say uh, before we, we go any further about Berman, um, an assist, a major assist to Kristen Hudak, who runs our PR with the Orioles, for helping me uh, get set up with the right person who found a way to get us in touch with, uh, with, with Chris Berman. And, yeah, I would say that since we've done the podcast, that's, that's, maybe, that's maybe the favorite thing I've done because 2131, being able to kind of encapsulate it and describe what it meant – and you were there. So I think you have a little bit better understanding. And I think also when you talk to somebody like Berman, who is, you know, he's a legend in the industry. He's been around so long. He's seen so many big events and big things. And for him to call that the top moment in his broadcasting career, the greatest night of his broadcasting life, like that's pretty unbelievable. when you look at some of the things that he has done and some of the things that he has accomplished. But yeah, I, I just, I thought it was, great the response that he gave as to you know when they were silent for that long and why they didn't talk and he's like you know a lot of people were crying and so were we uh the the 2131 streak and i thought you said it well uh when when the interview wrapped up or, or when you were talking to chris it was a streak that is uniquely american and it's uniquely baltimorean i mean it is you know blue collar grab your lunch pail every day Go do your job and just show up. And and somehow Junior found a way to always show up. And we talked to Ben McDonald about this on a previous podcast about his supernatural healing powers. And hopefully we'll get into that with the, on the Masson broadcast on on Sunday. And hopefully he'll talk about it as well on the Orioles Radio Network broadcast. But yeah, I just don't think it's a streak that's ever. I don't think anyone is ever going to come close. I, in this day and age, I don't think it's ever going to happen and I think it remains as impressive a streak and as impressive an accomplishment as we have ever seen in sports yeah and I think a few personal things that we completely are on the same page with Jeff one is we're both geeks and I don't mind saying this about our vocation about our job and about sports casting and we have both we know the history of it we know those who are really talented throughout history and those who have unique styles and and say what you will about this industry. There are very few people who are actual celebrities. There are a lot of people who think they're celebrities, but Chris Berman is one of those people who's withstood the test of time. He's created his own brand, his own genre. And as you said, he has been at and covered 
so many major American sports moments. And for him to put this number one is really remarkable. And I think he summed it up really well. And then the idea that he was, and you could tell, so enthusiastic about coming on our podcast, that to me says a lot. The other thing is we're both baseball fans. We understand this moment. And, and yeah, I did grow up in Baltimore. I was at this game. My lifespan is kind of starts with Cal's streak in many ways. Uh, he started a streak two years before I was born. But, you know, my household growing up was a, you know, major Cal Ripken household. So it, it is unique in that sense. And, and it was, you know, I feel very fortunate to having been there. And it's weird for me, you know, I have great recall for a lot of games, but I've seen the VHS done by Orioles production at this point in my life so many times, which is really well done. It's semi-narrated by Chuck Thompson, that I'm not sure what is my recall or what's the broadcast recall. And to kind of set the stage, and then I want to let Berman speak for, for himself, there was the national ESPN broadcast, which to this day is one of the highest rated games in the history of that network, done by Berman and Buck Martinez. There was the local television broadcast on home team sports done by Mel Proctor and John Lowenstein. And then there was the local radio broadcast on the Orioles radio network with John Miller, Fred Manfra, and Chuck Thompson was highly involved that weekend. And of course, famously, uh, President Bill Clinton was in the booth when Cal went deep uh, for, in 21-31, and he basically had the home run call along with, with John Miller. So that's kind of the broadcasting setup, and I know we always look at things that way, uh, but Chris Berman, He'll, he'll talk about this. This is a game he wanted, and this is a game that mattered to him. So we'll, we'll get right into it. And then we have D.L. Hall and, and Melanie Newman for our insider segment. But enjoy as we look back at 2131. Well, joining us right now on Inside the Yard is a very special guest, a legendary sportscaster and the face of ESPN for these many decades, and someone who had the national broadcast call 25 years ago for 2131 at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Chris Berman is with us. Chris, thank you so much for doing this. Hi, Jeff. Brett, how are you? It, um, 25 years ago already, well, to quote um, Bob Dylan, I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. I'd like to believe that. Uh, <laughs> There's a moment that you remember like yesterday, and I'm sure every Oriole, every baseball fan remembers it as if it were yesterday. Well, I was fortunate enough to be at the night you actually went into the National Sports Casting Hall of Fame in North Carolina. Uh, I had won a, a local award that night, and you brought the house down with your speech. But I was taken aback by you saying that in all your many years of broadcasting, that 2131 was your number one moment. Uh, tell me why. Well, I mean, to now that we have 25 years to look back at it, but you felt it at the time, uh, and congratulations on your awards, too. Um, I, uh, that's a wonderful time down there in North Carolina. I've been fortunate enough to go a few times. Um, if you're around long enough, Jeff, you, they have no choice but to at least give you an award out of sympathy, you know. So, um, but you're just, you know, you're just teeing off. So, at any rate, you knew even going in, but the magic, the spirit, the feeling, I'm getting goosebumps when I'm saying this. I'm not just being coy here. Um, you, it was, it was magic. It was the reason I rate it as, as number one for me, a feel fortunate to have been there. My job took me there uh, in the yard as we inside the yard, I should say, as we're doing this podcast. So perfect. Um, but it was a night and you felt it larger than what Cal was doing. It speaks for itself. And we can go back to that. It was larger than baseball. It was larger than sports. It was to me, America. It was, and again, I don't mean to be coy in, in these very different times, um, but I've said this probably that night when you heard me speak, et cetera, that it was a night to remind you that, yes, Cal Ripken Jr., 14 and a half years, was playing baseball. He wasn't, you know, working in automobile assembly line, for example, or coal mine, or pick your profession. But for 14 and a half years, he 
packed the lunch and went to work, even if he didn't feel great. So, and this is kind of what our country, uh, we're not the only one, but we're, we're Americans, um, I felt was, has always been built on. And it was, and, you know, to put it into context, it was the year after the strike, which, of course, had began, even bled over into April. The season began a little late, which was the only reason the game happened to be on a Wednesday night on September 6th, which was my night of doing the national games for ESPN. Were it on another night, I wouldn't have been in there. So that's just my point of view. Now you had President Clinton, who was in the booth with us, Vice President Gore. I met them both, um, as did Buck Martinez and our crew. We had Brooks sat with us, Brooks Robinson sat with us, Earl Weaver sat with us. Um, I mean, Joe DiMaggio was in the yard. Hello. Representing Lou Gehrig. They were teammates for a year and a half. Joe DiMaggio representing Lou Gehrig. Whoa. And now you put together what Cal did. I mean, I, it, it was, we were all spellbound. You felt that the night before, I think I should say this, and I, I don't mean to give the proverbial eight-minute answer to a 30-second question, but I'm good at it. Um, I've had to do NFL drafts, you know, you got to keep going. So um, the night before, and I think Cal will attest to this even now, when the number on the, the warehouse, when that game became official and it, you know, in the fifth inning and 2130 came down, that was heavy because as a kid, if you're a sports fan, there were very few numbers you knew. You knew 2130, Lou Gehrig, you know, 60 and then, you know, 61, Roger Maris. Uh, 56, Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak. Uh, 406, last man to hit 400, Ted Williams, etc. cetera. Uh, I want to say it was 12-312 or 12-320, probably the latter. It was Jim Brown's rushing mark all time. There are just a few numbers you knew, and that was one of them. And when that came down, it went from 2129 to 2130. That was a whoa. And then the next night when 2131 came there, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking for Cal, which I shouldn't. He goes, that's when it dawned on him. Not what he did, but now it, it was a celebration. The night before was wow. So the whole two days were just beyond comprehension. And um, like I said, I've been at ESPN 41 years. And that was the highlight of my career, even though I've, you know, I've been to 30 whatever Super Bowls. It doesn't matter. This spoke larger than anything else. It was great. Chris, when you, you knew you were going to do the game, like you said, because it was on a Wednesday, how much adrenaline did you have going for 21-31, and how did you manage it? Well, let's go back about a month. It's funny. I didn't really look to, like, May – when the season finally started, it was like three weeks in, I, you know, I, I added up, wait a minute, this could be a Wednesday. Now there could be rainouts, you know, who knows, right? But this is a Wednesday night. And our national voice of the Sunday game was John Miller, who, but he does the Orioles. He won't be doing it. And it's my night. So, okay, now you're thinking – you're sitting on something that's coming in three months, and this could be unbelievable. A month before, uh, I read a very good biography on Lou Gehrig. I thought that was a nice way, not that you were going to recite it for nine innings, of course, but I thought that was a good way to prepare without – you know what I'm saying? To, to put it all in perspective, what he did, ALS, everything, what he stood for, which we knew – but to read a biography of him was very helpful. And there were a couple of half innings where I got into some of those things, um, which I thought was helpful. About 10 days before, we had a meeting with the, the head of our area, well, not Executive Vice President Howard Katz, and it wasn't even a meeting. It was like a barbecue or whatever, and our head of baseball or whatever. We were just BSing. 
And I said, I view this game as a semi-announcerless game. And they went, well, what do you mean by that? And my answer was, I don't know what I mean by that. I really don't. But I just have a feeling that this is just all going to be different. And now, did we plan to be quiet for 23 minutes? No, because Cal didn't plan to say hello to everybody in the park for 23 minutes. So this isn't some grand plan that I or we had, but I did feel this is semi-announcerless. And it turned out to be the right feel. But you're sitting on, and you know everyone's going to be watching. Not so much that I'm doing it, but it's it's just everyone. Middle of the week, um, it it was the highest rating we ever got for a non-football game. It still may be. I mean, that may be passed by one or two things now, although I don't know. Ratings 25 years ago were a lot higher than anything now, right? So... Um, you knew you were sitting on a special night. You didn't know how special. You didn't know certain things, but so you can kind of prepare as I did differently, but be prepared to get the hell out of the way. And, you know, in a career where I guess I'm known for a lot of jabbering and and stuff, uh, Buck Martinez and I and our team, (laughs) you know, we get, we get paid to speak, right? To describe, to enhance, right? Um, we want an Emmy for saying nothing. <laughs> so, so there's a message in there for all of us, old and young announcers alike. Chris, I get chills every time I hear your home run call that night. Rip to left. Oh my goodness, he's done it again. And I think what I love about the call, it's what everyone was thinking at that moment. I can't believe. This guy just did it again on his night. And it, it was the perfect call in that moment. Well, I, my voice cracked, too, because he did it the night before. Of course, he homered, all, he homered the next night, too, against California. So, and I can call them the California Angels, right? Defeat the team formerly. But it was, that's fairy tale stuff. Now, Disney owns ESPN, right? I don't think they did then. Disney wouldn't have added the home run to it, I don't think. Although we've seen the natural. I get it. But you know what I'm saying. Like, on top of this, he's going to hit a homer? No. So it was – I mean, everybody felt it. At that point, we're all the same. I happened to have a mic, or ESPN was broadcasting it, but I probably felt the same as everybody watching, and certainly everybody, to quote again your show, inside the yard. I mean, it was – Sometimes you just speak for what you know everyone's feeling. And, yeah, oh, my God, he's done it again. And then get out. Be quiet. And so, <laughs> I, I mean, Cal, what he did was just it's just unbelievable. Um, we uh, – I had a nice moment with him. If you go back, we, we you know, we played it. And I hadn't seen it in at least over 20 years when the pandemic first hit. ESPN on Sunday nights was running, and maybe you guys saw it. Um, we're running classic games that we did. Uh, and one was um, Mike Piazza's homer, the first game back after 9-11 in New York, which was unbelievable for the Mets. And we ran this game again, ESPN did. And in the very beginning, Cal had agreed that I could be down in the locker room when he walked in at I don't know, it was the game 7.30 when he came in at 4, whatever the time was, for like a two or three, quite a three-minute brief interview and then let him go on his way. And if you go back and see it, I actually saw it and I laughed because what he told me later on was he came in and he knew it was going to be interviewed. We were, it, was, it was just me and a camera and right in the door. And I don't know what I had. Did you sleep well or whatever I asked him. And then with a straight face, I look him in the eye and I said, Cal, you think you might get in tonight? And uh, he looked at me like, what? Um, But typical Cal, I don't know. I haven't, I just got in. I haven't seen the lineup card. I hope so. (laughs) So um, 
years later, or maybe the next year, he won the, the overall ESPY. And, you know, I saw him then, and it could have been then. And he said, you, you, you let me for two minutes laugh a little. Otherwise, it was, I couldn't. And I'm not looking for praise for me. It was a moment I had with him alone, look, kind of dropping one on him. But as usual, he handled a tough hop with ease, as usual. Chris, in terms of the electricity inside the yard, compared to some of the other big events that you've done, and you've done quite a few, uh, how does that night rank against some of the other big ones you've covered? Well, that's a that's a good question, and it's a because there was an aura building up to it. Yeah, I know there's an aura building up to, let's say, a Super Bowl, right? Uh, other than a Game Seven of a World Series, you don't know that it's ending that night. Um, and you only have a day to get ready for that, if you will. It, it's Super Bowl, there's two weeks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and the build up. So, I mean, I don't want to downplay any of these Super Bowls that I've been at, which I've been at all of them since Super Bowl 16, which is a long time. So, and the games in the last 20 years have been pretty close, pretty amazing as a whole, as opposed to early when there were blowouts. But I'm, I'm digressing. Um, so there was this buildup, but not, I can't wait to see this game, or we're going to beat them. It, it was, it wasn't even will it happen. Yes, Cal could have got hurt the week before. I get it. But it, it was this buildup of, it was part elegance, if that's the right word to use. It was certainly, a, you know, several parts historic. It was many parts, as I say, work ethic, um, you know, not stoic, but I'm looking for a word for that. But, um, and yeah, the president was there. And like I said, Joe DiMaggio, I mean, this was an every Oriole, not to mention his dad, mom, et cetera, and brother. And um, so electricity the moment when he, the 23 minute, you know, when it became official, the difference in this was tears, tears of happiness to be truthful. Buck Martinez and I probably couldn't have spoken much in the 23 minutes. We were crying too, not out of sadness, but it was just, joy it was like pure joy you represented all of us and um so it's not crying at the super bowl unless you know you get intercepted at the one yard line and your team loses and you got to be kidding me but that's that that's a completely different deal so it, it was you know you don't have an 80 yard touchdown well cal hit the homer to your point but it was different in that way in that you knew the result, if that makes sense. But it didn't matter. You know, all the other games we go to, we don't know the result. When we went to the park that night, we knew the result. You know, barring a rainstorm in the fourth inning or, or something. I mean, you knew the result, but it didn't matter. It was that magical. Well, Chris, we appreciate so much. That was phenomenal and fantastic looking back 25 years at certainly uh, one of the most memorable nights in Baltimore Orioles history, uh, non-winning a championship, I'd say, and, and then for you and your career to share uh, your memories of that night. We really appreciate it. Well, uh, it, it's great to relive it. I hope uh, everyone that, that, that remembers it, this adds a little bit, but it ain't about me. I think every time I see Cal, and I'll call him this week, um, I thank him for letting me be in the park that night. I mean, and all of us, like, thanks for letting us, like, watch this. Hey, you know, Camden Yards was, what, three years old? I mean, it was brand new. I mean, it's still special. But it, it, it just everything. It was the old, the new. And, uh, and so uh, we won't see a moment like that ever again. But all of us who were there and those who remember, and maybe you'll see the broadcast again or listen to John on the radio or broadcast it again. Just to relive it is special. It gives you goosebumps. And I appreciate you guys, appreciate you guys calling me. This, uh, 
It's made my whole week. So thank you. And and he got a team winning some games, huh? It's not bad right now. Not bad. No, it's good. I, can I just say one interject? This is about Cal, but can I interject to Oriole fans one thing? Please. So I grew up in Connecticut, which is between New York and Boston, which that's not a newsflash. Um, my American League park that I always went to was, was Fenway or Red Sox and whatever. But, but I went to both plenty because you could drive and get there. And when the Red Sox in particular played the Orioles, I mean like 70s, you know, Palmer, et cetera, it, it, there was a, yes, they're rivals to a lesser degree in New York, but New York and Boston like didn't like, now Baltimore was obviously very good and in the way of winning pennants and for these other teams. There was a respect factor for the Baltimore Orioles that I grew up with. You know, I was born in 1955. So the respect in Boston and New York when the Orioles were, in fact, knocking those teams out of first place and, and representing the American League East by that point, et cetera, there was always something different about the Orioles are playing. The Red Sox fans, the Yankee fans wanted to beat them, but it wasn't, but we respect them. I, I, I thought I should say that. I don't, I don't have that chance to, to mention that anymore. So file that one away. Chris, we appreciate it so much. That was awesome. Thanks, gang. Good, have a good week. Have a good rest of your season. Thank you. And that is uh, Chris Berman. That was really fun, Jeff. I mean, thank you again for, for finding that into Kristen Hudek for, for setting that up. That was really enjoyable. Yeah, that was so much fun, and just to hear him talk about it, and and we talked to him a little bit after our our, our interview got sure done did. too about just his memories of watching the Orioles, because um, when when he was growing up and when he was you know com- becoming a really big baseball fan, it's when the Orioles were one of the best teams in baseball, and and a organization that was consistently going out there and winning games. And you know what? It's going to be, I think, really cool when this rebuild is finished because you've seen all the pieces that you added to the deadline and how Mike Elias is creating a system that is going to sustain itself and allow you to keep producing and keep winning. Um, and I think that the, the blueprint is, is being created. And, and when you think about you know, some of those teams that Berman grew up rooting for, you know, the homegrown talent that they had, the guys like Jim Palmer and you know, a bunch of others, that you're kind of seeing what, 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 what they're going for right now and, and to get this organization back to what Chris Berman remembers when he was growing up watching games and when every year the Orioles were, were knocking on the door, they were in the World Series, or they were getting close to going to the World Series. Yeah, and I think it's interesting when you think about Cal and the streak. And, you know, to me, the Oriole way means something, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a certain way of winning baseball, which I think is the way it's interpreted. Yes, there's a way you conduct yourself. And there's a way you handle your business. And that, to me, is what Cal represents in, in so many ways. And there's different ways to get to that winning formula in baseball. We all know that. But, uh, you know, going back to Bill Ripken, and then we'll have D.L. Hall coming up here, one of the top pitching prospects in all of baseball. Bill Ripken, who spoke on 2012, September 6th, on a Cal Ripken night at the ballpark when his statue was unveiled. We had Bill on our, uh, on our Orioles Magic the Podcast show. And, you know, he gave one of the great defenses of the streak. And for those who don't know, there were a lot of critics of the streak at the time saying it was selfish to play every day, that you are hurting the ball club by playing every day. And you could say, well, if you played 155 games a year, that his batting average would be 20 points higher, whatever the calculation was. And Bill said something that, you know, I'll never forget. He brought the house down in this speech before a September 6th game against the Yankees uh, in 2012 by saying that, you know what, it's the selfish player who wants to take a day game off after a night game when Roger Clemens or Nolan Ryan is on the mound, knowing you'd be 0 for 5 with two strikeouts or three strikeouts. But obviously, on any one of those day games after a night game or any one of those matchups, Cal certainly gives you the better chance to win than anyone else on the team at shortstop. And that's really the calculation of a team player, that it's the person who knows he could have a higher batting average and more home runs and more better offensive production if he just took a few days off but in actuality, on that given day, he's still your best option to win that day. And to me, uh, that, that is something also to think about as we get into this weekend. I know, Jeff, on the television broadcast, hopefully we'll get into all these things coming up this weekend when the Orioles host the Yankees. 
Yeah, I, I can't wait to hear Cal's take. And, and I'm, I'm going to ask, I, I want to ask him, like, how many times did you, like, suit it up or, or you get into the clubhouse and you're just like, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it today. Like, how, how many times during the streak did that happen? I mean, I assume it was quite a few, but he always found a way to go out there. And, and I agree with you. Like, some people might have said that it was selfish, but it's like, he's your best player. You, you, you want him out there if he can go out there. And the, the streak is, is definitely something that, you know, it was, it was a byproduct of him realizing what he had to do for his team. And I think that's the coolest thing about it. Really cool and uh, amazing that, you know, not only does a local legend run down this insane record. I mean, really, that's what it is. And I think you're right, Jeff. We'll never see him get close to it again. But it's an insane record. This guy grew up taking ground balls at Memorial Stadium, and he, he ran that thing down and became one of the greatest shortstops of all time and a first ballot Hall of Famer and, and did it in this new ballpark and the, the, the aura of the streak and the way he came through in those nights, the team and how they played those nights. It's all just almost, you wouldn't believe it unless you, you, you lived through it. So uh, let's change gears here. We're going to get into one of the top pitching prospects, someone you know very well, Jeff, D.L. Hall, and then we'll have our insider segment with Melanie Newman right now. Special guest joining us right now. He's one of the top pitching prospects in all of baseball and one of the top prospects in the Baltimore Orioles system. Former first-round pick, D.L. Hall is with us. D.L., how are you? I'm good. Uh, thank you for having me. Let's start with just how you're feeling right now. Obviously, it's been a strange time, but the innings you're getting in the alternate second buoy, how's that going? Uh, it's going well. You know, it's, uh, it's good to uh, – you know, I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm just happy to be doing something. Um, other than, you know, sitting at the house trying to uh, uh, get my arm moving there. So, uh, so it's, it's cool to be here and be around these older guys and, uh, you know, to get these game-like reps and, uh, you know, get this experience. What are some areas where you feel like you've improved since you've been at the alternate site? Um, you know, I think there's, you know, there's, there's multiple things I could say, you know, uh, whether it's routine or, uh, you know, just like, uh, stuff like, you know, working on certain pitches, you know, just being around these older guys and, you know, kind of seeing how they do things and uh, being able to, you know, kind of apply that to, you know, what I'm trying to do is, uh, you know, I think that's what's helped me the most. It's just like, you know, getting in a routine of, you know, doing everything the way that, you know, most of these older guys that, you know, have time in the big leagues, the way that they're doing it, and, uh, you know, trying to kind of, kind of trying to mimic that and, uh, you know, you know, kind of be, uh, you know, do what they're doing, and, you know, it's it, it's made a big difference, and uh, I think it helps me out a lot. DL, the common perception is this season's a setback for, for prospects. Um, I guess only time will tell, but for the ones that are able to be at the alternate site, do you see this season as a lost season, or, or do you think you are making strides, and then when next spring comes, you're going to be able to hit the ground running? Um, I, I wouldn't say I see it as a loss. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I think in some instances, that might be the case for, you know, some people. But I think, you know, with, you know, the, the prospects that we have and, you know, kind of the, the timetable that, you know, we're expecting, um, you know, for our guys to have, I feel like, you know, we're – I feel like we, they keep, we're, we'll still be on pace. Um, you know, I feel like I, I would have been a double-A this year. So, I mean, I feel like, you know, next year I think that, you know, I'll have every chance to, you know, probably start in double-A again and uh you know be able to hit the ground running and you know as long as I stay healthy and put up numbers I think uh you know I'll have a chance to you know continue moving forward who's the toughest hitter that you faced at the alternate site and why are they the toughest um if I had to choose I'd say uh toughest hitter I'd say you know of course Mountcastle was down here for a while uh you know of course he's He's one of the better hitters. You know, he's going to be one of the better hitters in the in the big leagues one day. He's going to be, you know, a top guy. But uh, him or I'd have to say him or probably uh, Dilson Herrera. Uh, he's uh, – and he hit a home run off of me, actually. But, you know, that's not the only reason I'm saying it. He's just uh, – he's a tough out. Um, he's a – he's a – he's a, he's got – and he's got major pop for his size. So I'd have to say, you know, one of those two guys. Uh, but Dilson, Dilson can swing it for sure. In your times facing Adley Rutschman, who's gotten the better of that matchup? 
Uh, I'd say I've thrown probably I've thrown live probably eight or nine times now. I'd say I'd say the first the first you know five or six. I think you know the the pitchers were coming out on top a lot more. Um, you know as far as any hitter, and I, I think I was I did pretty well against him for the first couple of lives, and then. You know, they're starting to see us uh, more and more and, you know, see the same arms. And the last couple times, I think last live, he got like two or three hits off of me. So he's starting to he's starting to uh, come around on me a little bit. You mentioned your kind of routine and how you've thrown eight or nine different times. When you're at the alternate site, is it like it would be if it was a regular season where you're pitching once every five days? How does it work? Yeah, yeah. We're on a regular five-day rotation. Um, you know, of course, we have – you know, sometimes where, you know, just with this crazy schedule and everything that's happening, you know, it, it kind of gets thrown off sometimes. Uh, like this week, we were on a six-day. Um, but, yeah, I mean, basically every other start, we've been on a five-day rotation. So, I mean, it's uh, it's, it's been good. I mean, they've, they've kept it about as, you know, regular as they can. So, uh, that's, been, that's been good. DL, uh Fair or unfair, you are always going to be connected, I think, to Grayson Rodriguez because you're two high school kids, both drafted in the first round, back-to-back years. Uh, you're going to be right next to each other on any top 10 Orioles list. If you look at any top 100 prospect list, you guys are both there pretty close to each other. How competitive is it between you two? I mean, so close in age and, and likely will one day be in this Orioles rotation at the top. Uh, how, is it competitive between you two? I mean, are, are you guys like naturally acquaintances? What's that like? Yeah, no, it's good. You know, me and Grayson hadn't really spent much time together, um, you know, until now, really. Uh, you know, we were we were at different levels. And then uh, in spring training, I, I didn't really know him. And, you know, we kind of have – he had his, you know, guys that he knew. and But uh, since we've been here, I'd say we've, you know, we became buddies. And so it's definitely started some trash talk between us uh, just because, you know, we came, became a little bit closer. And we've definitely uh, – we definitely – get at each other sometimes uh, especially yesterday we actually threw on the same day so that was kind of the first time and uh it was it was fun though yeah we definitely we get after it a little bit <laughs> stylistically as pitchers how are you guys uh the same and how are you different like what do you guys do differently besides the fact that one is right-handed and one one of you is left-handed um you know I think uh I think I think we're if I had to say it, I think we're I think we're similar. Uh, you know, we're we're both. I feel like we're both power power pitchers. Um, you know, Grayson throws really hard. Um, I feel like you know we're similar in in, in ways like that. But uh, you know, difference is he's six six or however tall he is. But <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was. But uh, nah, we uh, yeah, I think we're very similar. Um, you know, he's. He throws a cutter, um, you know, so that's a little bit different. Uh, I don't throw any of that. I, but, um, yeah, I, I'd say we're we're both the same style pitcher. Um, you know, he has some pitches that are better than mine, and I have, you know, some pitches that may be better than his. So, uh, but, yeah, I think we're very similar for sure. DL, everyone we talk to, coaches, players who have been at the alternate site, front office people, uh, they all say the same thing. The, the arms down there are incredible right now and they're prospects and they're young and whether it's you or Grayson or Bauman and it kind of goes on and on Kramer uh, is that the sense you have that there's some like this organization is loaded with pitching oh 100 percent I I was um I actually got in this conversation with uh, my my dad the other day I was you know I was telling him it's it, it's pretty crazy to see you know what we have coming up um whether it's you know pitching or position players, really, it's it's a uh, it's pretty it's pretty exciting to uh, you know see all of the all of the arms and uh, you know even these young prospects we have you know that are playing positions like you know Gunnar Henderson and and uh, you know he's starting to swing the bat really well here, uh, just a bunch of guys like that and and then yeah the pitching is just I mean it feels like everybody that throws you know there's always somebody you know every day in a live sim game that you're like wow that, that kid's pretty good uh so it's it, yeah it's definitely exciting for sure there are a bunch of young guys in the the system that were drafted out of high school and i remember you and i were talking about this one day when we were in wilmington last year 
about you were playing for a travel ball team in New Jersey called the Tri-State Arsenal, which is a really good program. And there was your, your coach who was there really understood pitching. And it sounds like a lot of what he taught you really prepared you to be a professional pitcher coming out of high school. Can you take us through what you learned from this individual and how he just prepared you to be a pro pitcher coming out of high school? Yeah, so uh, his name is uh, Joe Barth. He's um he's like a legendary coach up north. He's a, uh, you know, he's a uh, he's got to be you know around ninety years old now. He's 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 getting really old, but he's you know probably one of the the most smart baseball people I've ever met. You know, in my entire life, I tell people that all the time. I mean, I never t- took a pitching lesson growing up. I I never took a single lesson until, you know, I got into my junior year, I think. And I went and played for Arsenal, and I worked with him a few times, and that was about the only, like, lesson I ever took. But each offseason, I've been – since I got into pro ball, each offseason, I've I've taken a trip up there to see him uh, during the offseason. And uh, this year, um, it was – you know, it sucked. He was in the hospital this year, so I didn't get to see him. Uh, but he, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he had a huge impact on me. I mean, he just, just as far as, you know, knowing the game in and out and, uh, just like, you know, not just the physical side, but the mental side and just all that, you know, he has to say, he's like, he's real blue collar, like, you know, get after it. And I, and I love that. So, I mean, yeah, he's always, uh, I still call him and, you know, talk to him on the phone and just, uh, you know, just chat about it, you know, just chat with him about baseball because every time I talk to him, I learn something new. And uh, that's the cool part about it. But, yeah, he uh, – yeah, he's awesome. He actually, you know, he, he helped coach Mike Trout. Um, he taught Trout how to hit, basically. So, it's like he's, uh, he's, pretty, he's pretty unbelievable. DL, obviously prospect rankings and fans following them, it's never been hotter in many ways – and there's more lists, and there's more people with an opinion on it. How closely do you follow it, and how much do you care? Um, you know, I, I'm not gonna sit here and lie. Like I don't, I don't see it, but uh, I definitely don't. I try not to pay attention to it. I, you know, when I was in high school, and you know, trying, you know, when I was, you know, going into the draft and things like that, it's like I tried not to worry about it, but I would definitely go look at it, you know, and and stuff but you know since I I feel like since I've gotten here it's I I try not to look at it um now it's it's not really something I try and uh you know keep in my brain because I don't want it to mess with me you know either way uh you know it could be positive it could be negative but you know I try not to pay too much attention to it because uh you know I just try and go out on the field and you know prove somebody find somebody to prove wrong every single day so um you know it's kind of it's kind of hard to do that if you're worried about ranks, but I, I try not to. It's definitely cool, and, you know, it's it's a it's an honor to, you know, when I do see those things and stuff, but, you know, I try not to uh, put too much attention on it. Last one for me. We're doing this over Zoom, and I'm looking at your little marker that identifies you, and it says Dayton, and I think you told me last year, don't call me Dayton. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that is technically your first name, but explain why you go by DL. Um, so I, I, uh, I actually been going by DL since I was like, I'd say probably three years old. My grandpa, it was like the first time my grandpa, uh, he called me DL and, and my grandma, they've all, they always tell me this story, but they said my grandma was like, Oh, stop calling him that. His name's Dayton, blah, blah, blah. And, but my grandpa, he, he liked DL. So he always called me that. And then as I got older, uh, you know, some other people started calling me that. And then once I got into high school, and like uh, was playing baseball and and started getting like recruited and stuff. Like all my coaches and, and teammates would always call me DL in baseball. When I was home, it was Dayton. But in baseball and in the sports world, uh, and whether it was baseball, basketball, whatever, I was always called DL. And then once I got drafted, it was like, since that was my sports name, it, it was my everything name. Once I got drafted, it was like DL only. So. It's always just been DL. My grandpa started it when I was a little kid. <laughs> Last one for me, DL. Uh, if you were not drafted in the first round, where would you have gone to school? Uh, Florida. I would have been at Florida State University. Cool. 
Very cool. D.L. Hall. We won't call you Dayton Lane, but we appreciate it so much, D.L. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all for having me. Time now for our insider segment. Melanie Newman is with us here. And uh, Melanie, uh, it's been a little bit up and down for the Orioles as of late. But my big takeaway is seeing right now Ryan Mountcastle in the mix and what we've seen from Keegan Aiken in one start. So to me, even though uh, the wins aren't happening at the same speed we saw earlier in the year, there's still a lot of positives right now on this team. Yeah, there really are. And honestly, there's even more than what we thought we would have going into the season. The winning streak was great. It got everybody excited. But at the end of the day, the focus with a rebuild is still the growing period and watching guys really try to take on new positions. We've seen some of that with Maslin Lesfield. He's still trying to figure it out. But he's he's done the job so far. And of course, what he's brought at the plate offensively. Uh, it's really hard to argue with it. He's absolutely lit up the opposing pitchers right now as they still haven't yet figured him out. For Keegan Aiken, kind of a little bit of that as well. You know, he's new, so no one's got the book on him yet. And he really seems to have enjoyed the fact that he got to go back to a starting position for this last game since that's what he's done his whole life. How important do you think it is for the starting pitchers to go deeper into games? Because I think it's critical the rest of the way, just when you don't have really defined bullpen roles and you're not dealing with a whole lot of experience. And on top of that, the group in the bullpen can be overworked and has been overworked with the fact that you're seeing a lot of starts that are going four innings. A lot of, we haven't really seen any five inning starts recently. You know, it's across major league baseball with the exception of a handful of teams. I'm dumbfounded that we're in September and we're seeing average starts that are five, maybe six innings at best. But for the Orioles in particular, you have to have it because in my opinion, that's what leads to Cole Sulcer in a situation right now where he can't really work out of his own head because it's just been time and time again coming up to him with a one-run differ with a tied ball game and you're coming down to your final two, three outs. And um, it's mentally exhausting. And that's the hardest part to really be able to work back from. You know, the physical stuff, it is what it is. They're used to that. But Paul Fry has done a great job being that bridge guy in the middle. Jorge Lopez has kind of bounced around. Eshelman as well, another guy who's actually a lot of people started to talk about him because wherever they've needed him, he's come in and fit the bill. But if you have stability at that role, that's a game changer. And I mentioned young guys performing right now. I did not mention Hunter Harvey, who's made two appearances. First one, probably what you expect in two-thirds of an inning, coming back for the first time off the IL. But uh, when he got in his second game, that was Hunter Harvey, and it looked the part, uh, a quick inning for the most part, with a couple of strikeouts, Melanie. Yeah, I'm excited to finally see him after all the hype, and we've waited since spring training now to really see what he can do. And I, I agree, Brett, you know. It's kind of what you expected his first time back, and Hyde has said it. He can do sim games. He can be at the alternate side all he wants, but it's still not the same as an actual real game with opponents that are not your own hitters. Um, and so we saw that. He, he tried to work through it and unfortunately couldn't finish the inning. But, yeah, the second time out, that was where you started to see it click. That's where you thought, okay, this is, this is the guy that we've been hearing for, and hopefully he keeps building on that. He's somebody you can push back into those are leverage situations in the eighth and ninth while that's now the big question. One thing that we saw with the road trip, and I haven't talked to a lot of people about this, but I want to get your take on it because we saw it when we were doing the game on radio together. What did you think of the five-man infield? The, the five-man infield that they deployed at the very end of the, the game against the Blue Jays where you had to find a way to get three outs and keep a guy at third base and you have one out, runner at third, five-man infield. What did you think when you saw it for the first time? <laughs> I think I would like to see that in person where I can actually see who our fielders are shifting into that situation. But I live for that kind of gritty, let's get really creative stuff. It's just, it's exciting. Um, you know, you don't get to see it that often. And I think for good reason, but when you look at who the Orioles have and the fact that a lot of the guys that are coming out every day were selected because they can play all over the field. Yeah, that, that makes the five-man infield situation a lot better when that outfield who moves in, well, he's pretty much played at every position around the bags as well, um, and it got the job done. So let's, let's see some stuff like that. I think it's exciting. Yeah, why not, especially in those moments. Uh, Melanie, we appreciate it so much. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. That's Melanie Newman and uh, D.L. Hall before that. And, Jeff, you got to see D.L. 
up close last year pitching for the Frederick Keys. You know, most prospect rankings have him in the 40s to 60 range. You know, to me, we're splitting hairs here. Uh, what I see is a, a left-hander striking out about 12 per nine innings in the minor leagues, really young, who throws very hard. Uh, what do you see with DL? DL has incredible stuff. I'd say last year of all the pitchers that I saw in the Carolina League, he was probably the best pure stuff of anybody that I saw. Uh, when he was on, he was unhittable. There were a couple of games that he pitched where you're kind of just like, yeah, he's got it today. He's locating multiple pitches today. They're, they're, they're not going to hit him. And, and when that was the case, they didn't hit him. I think there is some, some command stuff that needs to be better with him. He needs to find a way to, to consistently be aggressive inside the strike zone. And I think that's why this alternate site is, is helpful. You know, we heard from Kenny Steenstra on the previous podcast about how they have TrackMan set up to, to be a major league strike zone. And he's hitting and he's facing veteran hitters who uh, they won't chase. They, they're just like and, – and in the big leagues, as, as, as we know, uh, if you don't give them something to, ch- to hit, like they're, they're not going to go after your stuff out of the zone. Like they're just not going to do it. They're going to like, all right, give me another pitch. And I think is, is if he can find a way to consistently attack the zone and get ahead, um, that's going to be really key because the stuff is there. And when he is on, he is extremely tough to hit. And I think with Grayson Rodriguez, and, and we talked a little bit about that when we, we chatted with DL, um, you're looking at two possible frontline starting pitchers uh, coming down the pipe in the next few years. Yeah, it's very exciting. And there's a lot of other depth starting pitchers who I think are rotation pieces, back-end bullpen pieces that are coming. And uh, I think it will be very interesting, interesting to see how Keegan Aiken does the rest of the year. Will we see Dean Kramer? And there's just a high level of competitiveness. And, and even for a DL Hall of Grace Rodriguez, they might be given a longer leash, given their prospect status and their abilities. But there's going to be other guys. And you better be able to stay focused and, and get better. And it's going to be very interesting to see how it all shakes out. But I thought DL was interesting to talk to. And these guys are still so young. I mean, that's the thing that's so fascinating about DL, even with this season loss. I mean, likely heading to Bowie, I guess, next year. He's only 21 years of age. Uh, so uh, exciting time for the Orioles uh, farm system, now ranked eighth by uh, MLBpipeline.com. And, you know, who knows what's going to look like by the end of the draft next year or by the end of next deadline. I mean, that could be a top three or four system. And that's the way it's trending. And to that end, Mike Elias joins us on our next show. So be out for that and be listening for that. And uh, that was a really fun episode. Chris Berman, D.L. Hall, Melanie Newman, we had it all on this show, Jeff. So that was fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was so much fun to talk to Chris Berman. And I, I've always been a big fan of him and what he does and, and kind of what he has represented to, to the industry and what he's, uh, what he's accomplished. So to have him on to talk about a night that he said is the, the highlight of his career, uh, that, was, that was pretty cool. And uh, DL was fun, and Mel is always fun. So we, we, we enjoyed it and uh, had a great time, and I uh, hope everybody listening did too. And on Masson this weekend, check out Jeff Arnold doing play-by-play, along with Ben McDonald as his color analyst. And some lame sideline reporter will be there too. But oh, other don't, than don't, that, don't, 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 you're, you're a tremendous slouch. You'll, you'll, you'll be just fine. No, I'm, it's going to be a looking, fun weekend. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, they're, they're bringing in the standard definition cameras just for that. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. That's Jeff Arnold. I'm Brett Hollander. We'll talk to you on television this weekend, everyone. Be safe.